1: Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend Richard LaDuke and actually another guest today. Hi, I'm Jonathan Oliver. Uh, Richard, what what, what do we want to talk about this week?
2: Well, so this kind of falls in line with the general purpose of the podcast, which is to help people gain a greater understanding contextually of of the history of the church to help to strengthen their testimonies and so we like to take questions through emails and other other sources and makes a lot of sense to have jonathan in here actually jonathan's going to go ahead and introduce the the topic of what we're going to talk about today
1: all right
0: Uh, yeah thank you uh so i was i was just curious that uh you know there's there's multiple accounts of the first vision given by joseph smith over the years and uh i would love to know some of the differences between the accounts. And why certain things maybe are emphasized and others are not, and how do you reconcile those differences?
1: Now, that's a great question, and and honestly, a question that that a lot of people have. I I would guess that there's at least some people listening. I mean, my mom that that aren't even aware of the the multiple accounts of the first vision. That uh, that when you say, "What do you mean multiple uh, accounts of the first vision?" I, I, I read it in Joseph Smith History, and, and that's that's it. You, I, what do you mean? There's there's other accounts. Well the reality is is that that we have uh over the course of Joseph Smith's life multiple times where it's recorded that Joseph talks about about the first vision. Now, we already know that he talks about at times that that aren't recorded, right? I mean he he says in his in his history that he, he couldn't find anyone that would believe the vision, you know, he, he, we know that he talks to, you know, his his local minister and that that, that minister doesn't appear to to keep a record of it. So Joseph's going to talk about it multiple times, but we have we have accounts of him either writing down his experience, or a scribe of his writing down what Joseph says, or of other people uh, hearing Joseph talk about it and them writing it down. So we want to talk about these, these these different things. But I think first what I want to start with is this understanding that's very different for for 19th century latter day saints than it is for 21st century latter day saints for most latter day saints today the 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 first vision Joseph Smith's experience with God and Jesus is is, is pretty central to what they why they believe I, I certainly some people their their testimony started with reading the book of mormon maybe others it started with a you know a, a trip to a family history library i mean Everyone has a different place where they start, but I, I would say that for most Latter-day Saints, the, the first vision is a pretty central part of why they believe. What would be surprising to you is that for 19th century Latter-day Saints, they don't really talk about the first vision hardly at all um, in, their, in their published writings, in their sermons. It, it, it comes up, but it just doesn't come up as often as you'd think it would. And and that can sometimes, first of all, be a little bit, a little bit troubling to people. Like, well, why, why in the world were they not talking about it in every single you know, fast and testimony, meaning the way I am? And and one of the reasons why is that their their focus is is a little bit different. For us, we're looking back at when this whole movement started. The church is incredibly important to us. And so we're looking back to the point where God opened the heavens. That seems pretty natural to us. We want to know the beginning point of of where our beliefs come from. But during Joseph Smith's life, he is going to have many visions. He is going to have multiple experiences and not just one experience with God and Jesus. In fact, for them, for people in the 19th century, the vision, they they talk about Joseph Smith having a vision. As I said on on an earlier podcast, the vision they talk about is Doctrine and Covenant section seventy-six, because that happens in eighteen thirty-two, and it's essentially everything the first vision is, with all kinds of even more incredible doctrines, visions of the eternities, understandings of of, of Lucifer, of of the afterlife, and so you can you can see why, in in the nineteenth century, even even Joseph, let alone others might not focus so much on when things started for Joseph. If I'm trying to convince someone that Joseph Smith is really a prophet, it's kind of weird, actually, in 1833 to say, let let me tell you a story, okay? 13 years ago, Joseph Smith saw God and Jesus. It seems like a lot better argument to simply say, last week, Joseph Smith saw God and Jesus, right? That The reality is, the, the present nature of joseph smith's miraculous visions is 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 a part of what they are what they're doing so so first it's important to understand that when we look back on the past the things that people in the past focus on as being very important are not always the same things that we focus on and sometimes we think well no they, they should be well i mean that's that's why you treat the past like that foreign country that you're visiting, right? That, that what they care about, what they focus on is different. Now, back to the, the original question. Um, you know, that's a, that was a good way to obfuscate, I thought, right? So, you know, whenever you're trying to buy time uh, to answer a difficult question, you, you just talk about something else. Um, um, the, there are multiple accounts. And, you know, as, as, as Jonathan, you know, uh, alluded to, they're they're not all the same. And the fact that they're not all the same can be very troubling to people. Again, because most people have only read the Joseph Smith account in Joseph Smith history in the Pearl of Great Price. That that's what they they may they might have memorized that uh, when they went on their mission. They it's it's where they've studied Joseph Smith's experience. But as a historian, not only do you not expect to find multiple accounts of a historical event exactly the same. If you in fact found it, that would be very troubling to you because that's not how life is lived and it's not how records are created. I've had the experience multiple times of going to speak, um, you know, a fireside or, 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 or something. And I'll have people come up afterwards and say things to me that I did not say. Like, like, at all, that clearly it's something that matters to them, but you know, you know, someone come up, I just love the way that you talked about, as long as if we're righteous, we won't have bad things happen to us. I, not only did I not say that, I don't believe that. So <laughs> so I did a terrible job speaking. But what's going on? What's going on is there's, there's a filter there. And the filter is the person listening has their own concepts, ideas, feelings about religion, and so, so they're going to fill through the things that I say th- through that. Well, not every account is exactly the same. Some accounts are accounts that Joseph writes with his own handwriting. Some are accounts that his scribes write down as they hear him talking to other people about it. Some are like the published history that's prepared specifically for people to read. And some are other people just writing down in their journals what they, they think they heard Joseph say. So I want to start with the earliest account that we have is the 1832 account. This is sometimes called Joseph Smith's 1832 history. It's important because it is the only account that is written for a large part in Joseph Smith's own handwriting. Um, if 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 uh, you could you could see this, you can you can go to uh, either josmithpapers.org or to uh churchofjesuschrist.org and and find the accounts of the first vision. So you can actually follow along with us. You can you can type in accounts of the first vision, and you'll find them. And the first one that we're going to to talk about is is Joseph Smith's 1832 history, which, like I said, is the earliest, and it's the one that's written by Joseph Smith. At least most of it is. Now I'm not gonna read all of these accounts because um, even my mom had stopped listening at that point but um i I, I do want to to focus on on parts of them so For instance, in Joseph Smith's 1832 history that he writes, he provides some information that actually will seem pretty familiar to people who've read the account in the scriptures. I was born in the town of Sharon in the state of Vermont, North America, on the 23rd day of December, AD 1805, of goodly parents who spared no pains instructing me in the Christian religion.
0: I love that statement right there. Spared no pains. Yeah. That means they were obsessive about it yeah
1: it's they, they religion matters a lot to them right um now uh he says at about the age of 10 my father joseph smith senior uh and you love the way that he spells senior you really should look at the 1832 history
0: it was it, A
1: french kind of a french yes way. it is yeah. riddled with spelling errors and grammatical errors and And frankly, you know, I'll assign this to my students to read. And and not only are they impressed with, you know, getting to hear this other way that Joseph Smith describes his experiences, many of them come back saying, this really strengthened my testimony of the Book of Mormon. Because Joseph Smith is writing this three and a half years after he wrote the Book of Mormon. And, I mean, I don't want to be unkind to joseph's attempt here but here we go yeah it it's a dumpster fire i mean honestly i mean he he starts thoughts he doesn't finish them he misspells almost everything he there's 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 very little connectedness and it really does seem like joseph is he really he really is trying to write something that is important one of the things I, I really should have started with is that we actually don't know why joseph created this account and what i mean by that is we don't know what joseph smith intended when he created the account because the account itself is something that was never actually published he doesn't write hey i'm writing this to all the people who aren't members of the church they, they know what i'm doing so without that knowledge you don't know what the intent of the creation of the document is and if you think about that that matters a lot a historian cares a lot about why someone created a document who is this document intended for, I mean, uh, really a, a, the best example I could give is when I went on a mission and I wrote letters home to my mom. Um, since my mom's the only one who listens to the podcast right now, she's shaking her head and probably saying, you should have written a lot more. But the the reality is I didn't write everything into my letters. I'm sorry that you found out this way, mom. But the, the reason why I didn't write everything into my letters is I didn't want to upset my mom, so I I deliberately kept things out, especially if they were really upsetting. Should I tell my mom that that guy had a gun today? Let's just say we met some interesting people, or uh, uh, in another, you know, instance, um, I, I got really sick on my mission, because I went on my mission to Wisconsin, and it's negative 40 there, you know basically in June and so it, it was it was cold in the wintertime and I was I, I got sick but I wanted to keep pushing through I wanted to keep working and I just kept getting sicker and sicker and I eventually got essentially pneumonia and, and, and uh, bronchial pneumonia and I had to go to the hospital. Well, my mom found out from my mission president that I was sick at all and I'd been sick for weeks. She found out when I was in the hospital, as you might imagine, you know, her question was, why hadn't you told me? And I was like, Well, I did tell you. You know, I'd written a letter a couple of weeks earlier where I said, Yeah, I haven't been feeling as good. You know, something like that. And so if you wanted to, if you if all you had was my letters from my mission home to my mom, you would actually get a very different view of what actually happened on my mission, because it's kind of a sanitized version. I, I deliberately left some things out because of who my audience was i i didn't want my mom to worry we we all do this we all we all we all change the way we talk about things on the basis of who we're talking to how much time we have and what their shared knowledge is imagine you sit down on an airplane next to somebody and that person says you know, oh, you 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 flying to, to Utah? Do you do you live there? And you know, you already know what the next question is. You're you're weighing in your mind. Do I just lie and say no? I'm from Colorado. I'm just flying to Salt Lake, right? You no, know, but you say yes. I, I, I live in Utah. Oh, are you one of them Mormons? You know, and and uh, again, you have to decide. Do I want to have this conversation? And so you say, yeah. Well, actually, we prefer to be called Latter Day Saints. But um, <laughs> uh, no, you you you. you you have you acknowledge who you are and, and then he says something to the effect of, Well, what is it that you guys even believe? I mean, I don't want your whole spiel, but what, what do you guys what do you guys believe? Well, what you say to that man next will actually depend on a lot of different things. You know, he he acknowledges to you that he's a Christian and just wants to know why Mormons believe so many weird things. Well, what you say to him will be very different than if the person sitting next to you Is actually a Hindu right who says you know I don't I don't understand how people believe in Jesus at all well you're going to start with something a little bit more basic you're gonna start with you know you know most people believe in a supreme being even though they might call him by different names you're gonna start with something different on the basis of this shared understanding so who your audience is why you're creating the document matters a lot what I write in my journal were I to keep a journal, uh, is is very different because I never intend it to be public. Although now I'm a historian, I'm pretty jaded. I'm constantly thinking like, what if someone were to read this later? Um, and really, it'll be my emails probably that, that uh, you know, will we'll tell the story. Um, what, 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 but what you write in your journal generally is something that you only intend for yourself. So you say things in there that you wouldn't normally say. You might be more expressive of your feelings. You might uh, you know, express doubts that you wouldn't send in a letter to your mom on your mission. With this earliest history, because it wasn't ever published, we don't really know. Now, it seems like Joseph was intending to put it out in the public somewhere because the way it starts is, a history of the life of Joseph Smith Jr., an account of his marvelous experience and all the mighty acts which he doeth in the name of Jesus Christ. That sounds like now that, that introduction to it is written by Frederick G. Williams, not by Joseph. But it sounds like the intent is there's been a lot of people slandering Joseph Smith in 1832 that you have a rising tide of anti-Mormonism in Kirtland, especially. And and so it would make sense that while there's a lot of people putting out false stories about me, let me put out what what actually happened. Let me let me put out what what I'm saying happened. So that, that makes sense. But clearly, the document is never finished. Would Joseph have intended to edit this were he to go back to it later? Let, let me just drop to the end to read to you how it ends. You can see how much it just kind of dangles and, and the, the document stops because it doesn't just talk about the first vision. This 1832 history talks about you know, uh, getting the plates, talks about the translation of the Book of Mormon, talks about Martin Harris asking for the 116 pages and losing them. You know, Martin Harris probably wishes that wasn't part of this. Um, But let me just read you. This is how it ends. This is the last part of his history. He uh, talks about Oliver Cowdery coming down to help him write. The Lord appeared unto a young man by the name of Oliver Cowdery and showed unto him the plates in a vision and also the truth of the work and what the Lord was about to do through me, his unworthy servant. Therefore, he was desirous to come and write for me and to translate. Now, my wife had written some for me to translate, and also my brother Samuel H. Smith, but we'd become reduced in property, and my wife's father was about to turn me out of doors, and I had not where to go, and I cried unto the Lord that he would provide for me to accomplish the work whereunto he had commanded me. And and that's it. That's the end of, of, the, uh, of the account. So, you you can see it, it 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 leaves off not just in the middle of a sentence it leaves off in the middle of a thought. If this is all you had, you know, apparently God didn't answer his cry because he cried out for God to help him and and just it leaves off. So it's an incomplete thing, not something that's gone through revision. So we've got a couple of issues there. It, it's it, the great aspects are, it's written much of it in Joseph Smith's handwriting. It's our earliest account, which means it's the closest to the actual event happening. It's, it's the first time that Joseph is talking about it, that we have, that, that he's writing about it. And, uh, uh, you know, so it, th- that's all very important. But some of the, the negatives are, I don't actually know the purpose of its creation. I don't know what the intent was. I don't know if the, re I mean, for all I know, and I'm not saying this is the case, but for all I know, Joseph went back and read over this and was like, "This, I hate this. Let's do something else. Maybe, maybe crumble it up to throw it to the side, basically. Regardless, those are some of the limitations of the document. It's important to understand from the very beginning. Now, let me uh, go back to the, what, what the focus of this document actually is. The focus of the document is different than each of the other accounts. After describing the fact that his family, you know, had had taken pains to both uh, instruct him in reading and the ground rules of arithmetic, as well as his, um, as well as teach him the scriptures, Joseph begins to get very personal in this account. At about the age of twelve. Years, My mind became seriously impressed with regard to the all-important concerns for the welfare of my immortal soul, which led me to the searching the scriptures, believing as I was taught that they contained the word of God. Thus applying myself to them and my intimate acquaintance with those of different denominations led me to marvel exceedingly. For I discovered that instead of adorning their profession by a holy walk and godly conversation agreeable to what I had found contained in that sacred depository, This was a grief of my soul. Thus, from the age of 12 years to 15, I pondered many things in my heart concerning the situation of the world, of mankind, the contentions, the divisions, the wickedness, and the abominations and darkness which pervaded the minds of mankind, and my mind became exceedingly distressed. Now, Frankly, you could kind of cut out Joseph Smith there uh, having this discussion with himself in 1818 or 1819 and fast forward it to today, right? The way he's describing, I looked around at the world and there was all kinds of contentions and no one agreed on everything. And as a, you, you, can, you can understand that as a young person, that's even more problematic, right? Because the adults in my life don't agree on what you're supposed to do. Now we've talked about in previous podcasts the religious world that Joseph Smith grew up in, but, but remember that there is a very stark difference in the Protestant denominations that are in New York at the time that are trying to get converts. You have some that are most anyway, that are, that are very heavily Calvinist, meaning what they are teaching is that the only way that you can be saved is if God gives you the gift of faith. It's very different. A Latter-day Saint, when when they think about, oh yeah, well, you have to have faith to be saved. Well, how do you have faith? Well, I, I studied the Book of Mormon, and I prayed about it, and now I have faith, and that's why I believe. Of course I believe I'm saved by faith. That's not what Calvinists are saying. They're not saying that you extend this effort in order to study the scriptures, and that because you did, now you have faith. That's all you. Look, I read the scriptures, and I studied this, and I prayed about it. How many times are you going to say I in that explanation? Instead, the Calvinists around him are saying, no one deserves to be saved. Everyone should go to hell. And a very few people, because God is good, God chooses to give them the gift of faith. But it's absolutely a gift of God. It isn't that you're somehow better than someone else. It isn't that, oh, well, I started studying my scriptures, and so now I've come to Jesus. In fact, a Calvinist would say it the exact opposite way. If you have felt this impression to start studying the scriptures and to manifest faith in Jesus, that must only be because God gave you the gift of faith. That's why you're feeling it. And and so am I feeling this draw to Jesus, this draw to scripture scriptures? Am I one of these people that's actually saved? In fact, it's very hard to know. That's the kind of thing he would have heard in the church that he probably primarily attended growing up. And that's the Presbyterian church there in Palmyra. His mother is a pretty strong Presbyterian. You know, as we talked about in a previous podcast, as poor as the Smiths are, she is donating enough money to the local Presbyterian church, Lucy Mack Smith, that they actually have their own pew, uh, meaning that there's a door on the end of the pew. That Back in the 19th century, a lot of the pews had little doors on the end with locks on them. And how you got a key to that lock was by donating enough money to the church. So they have their own pew, meaning she's donated enough that She never has the problem at a missionary farewell where some weird family's sitting in their pew. Only they are sitting in their pew because they've got a key key to the door. But this is what he would have heard. He would have heard sermons like the Jonathan Edwards that we shared at other times. God abhors you. You are a vile, horrible sinner. God should destroy you right now. If it just so happens that you feel this call to faith, that you feel anything other than the wicked creature you are, well then praise God, you might have been someone that God chose to save. But you probably aren't. The reality is, the, the Calvinist reality, is that almost no one is saved. And even people who think that they might be saved, probably aren't actually saved. Imagine how that feels as an 11 and a 12 and a 13 year old boy hearing the descriptions of hell that it it is this horrific horrific place of suffering and anguish and it's not for a hundred years it's not for a thousand years it's forever well how can i know whether or not i'm saved and the answer in many cases is you can't Now, John Calvin himself would say, actually, a really saved person will actually get to the point where they know that God has elected them for salvation. But, you know, Martin Luther actually never thought you could know. You never could know whether or not you have real faith in Jesus or just this false faith that's going to lead you to damnation. That's a pretty stark position, that there's nothing you can do for salvation you can simply try to serve God so that God doesn't destroy you in this world before he sends you to hell. On the other side of the ledger is the Arminian position that's being espoused by, you know, primarily Methodists in Palmyra. And they are teaching that Arminian position, and that is that, in fact, you have to choose to accept Jesus's grace. That Jesus died for everyone, and everyone could be saved if you accept truth about jesus and you have faith well those are pretty stark differences either there's nothing i can do to aid my salvation and i have to just hope that god gave me the gift of faith or it's all about whether or not i believe the right things about jesus in order to be saved but both of those things can't be true and in fact look Arminian and Calvinist preachers regularly debate one another on this very point. And they always start off very kind, you know, like, you know, we both believe that you have to be saved by Jesus. So, you know, we're both we're both good Christians. And by the end of every debate, they're at each other's throats. Well, you're denying the power of God. You're saying God can't save the people he wants to save? Well, Well, you're denying the mercy of God. You're saying that God doesn't want to save everybody? I mean, because they are not now and they weren't then compatible belief systems it's actually a completely different belief about god and so as joseph's going to these various denominations he's hearing totally opposite things about god not because the bible is shape-shifting its words every single time someone goes there but they're actually taking the same passages and claiming that they mean something else I mean, you can just take a a great example of a debate is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, right? The the one you see at every football game, John 3.16. Well, a Calvinist would say, exactly. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for the people, for whosoever, Right? whosoever God chose to save that's who Jesus died for Jesus died for the people that God already knew he was going to save and an Armenian read the exact same passage the opposite way saying God so loved the world that he made it so that anyone could be saved so they're reading the same passage and claiming it means the exact opposite and that's the most one of the most famous passages in all Christian literature what do you do when you are a 12 or a 13-year-old boy and your mom's pastor says one thing? But you start going to the Methodist church and that Methodist pastor saying something else. Well, he talks about this personal feeling in this account. I pondered these things in my heart. I became distressed. I became convicted of my sins. Well, no joke. I guarantee every single week he was hearing about how horribly sinful he was. And by searching the scriptures, I found that mankind did not come unto the Lord, but they had apostatized from the true and living faith. And there was no society or denomination that had built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament. I felt to mourn for my own sins and for the sins of the world. For I learned in the scriptures that God was the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he was no respecter of persons, for he was God. And I looked upon Uh, The sun, the glorious luminary of the earth, and the moon rolling in its majesty through the heavens, and also the stars shining in their courses, and the earth upon which I stood, and the beasts of the field, and the fowls of the heaven, and the fish of the waters, and man walking upon the face of the earth in the majesty and strength and beauty, whose power and intelligence in governing the things which are so exceedingly great and marvelous, even in the likeness of him who created them. And when I considered those things, my heart exclaimed, Well hath the wise said, It is a fool that saith in his heart that there is no God. My heart exclaimed, all these bear testimony and bespeak an omnipotent and omnipresent power a being who maketh laws and decreeth and bindeth all things in their bounds, who filleth eternity, who was and is from all eternity to all eternity. When I considered these things and that that being uh, seeketh such to worship him as worship him in spirit and truth, I cried to the Lord for mercy. You get this depth of, jo- I mean, look, in, in Joseph Smith history, you get Joseph Smith explaining that he really was wrestling. You know, it was impossible as a person, young as I was, and unequated with men and things, to come to any certain conclusion who was right and who was wrong. Joseph's giving you kind of the, he's, he's kind of giving you the, the uh, you know, the lawyerly explanation of his uh, struggles when he was younger. Here in this account, when he's writing it with his own hand, He's making it a little bit more detailed, this giant contradiction between the sex and his own understanding. Look, I need to be saved. I I need a way that I can be saved. I need mercy. And I don't even understand how I can get it. What do I know? I know that God exists and I know hell is coming for me. How do I escape it? Is, Is there even a way to escape it? Who is right? I cried unto the Lord for mercy, for there was none else that, to whom I could go to and obtain mercy. And the Lord heard my cry in the wilderness. And while in the attitude of calling upon the Lord, in the sixteenth year of my age, a pillar of light above the brightness of the sun at noonday came down from above and rested upon me, and I was filled with the Spirit of God. And the Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord, and he spake unto me, saying, Joseph, my son, Thy sins are forgiven thee. Go thy way. Walk in my statutes and keep my commandments. Behold, I am the Lord of glory. I was crucified for the world, that all those who believe on my name may have eternal life. So you can see from the account that Joseph gives there how how powerful but also personal this experience is. And that the thing that he is focusing on is, is what his question was really being driven by. And that is, yeah, he wants to know which, which church is true, which denomination is right, but the reason why he wants to know is he needs mercy. He needs to be forgiven of his sins. Why, why does it matter whether the Presbyterians are right or the Methodists are right? Because I need to know whether or not I'm going to hell. That's what matters. That's why I'm asking in the first place. A lot of people are telling me that I'm going to hell. He doesn't know that a lot more people are going to be telling him that as soon as he tells anyone this story. But a lot of people are telling him that he's going to hell. I need to know how to not go to hell. That's what I need. When he focuses on the experience, something that, that there's a couple of things here that people might notice. And in fact, sometimes people are, are, are very critical about. In Joseph's well-known account, in the account that you've all read, he spends a good deal of time talking about the light that appears, how it descends, what he sees in the light, the two personages are there, how they talk to one another. And in this account, we don't see this kind of separation. We certainly have Joseph using this kind of generic term for God or Jesus multiple times. I was in the attitude of calling upon the Lord. He sees a light. I was filled with the spirit of God and the Lord opened the heavens and I saw the Lord. And he keeps using this terminology of Lord, which has led some people to, to be critical and say, well, I, I think that Joseph Smith didn't even initially tell people that, you know, that he saw God and Jesus, or maybe Joseph Smith at the time was actually, maybe he was still just a Trinitarian. And, and it took Joseph Smith later to invent that part of his theology that in fact, God and Jesus were separate. And so it it can be something that's that's unfamiliar to to a Latter-day Saint. Well, why why wouldn't he specifically talk about the fact that the Father and the Son are there? Now, we're saying that because that's actually the part of the the first vision story that we focus on the most. It's the part that that matters to us in part because I'm guessing that most Latter-day Saints have had a conversation with a Christian friend at some point who explained to them in relatively kind terms uh, the type of apostate blasphemer they were because they didn't believe in the Trinity the right way. And so this aspect of the, of the, the first vision that Joseph sees both God and Jesus standing right next to each other is really important to us. So it actually makes it really hard for, I I can't comprehend why he would even write this down without making that very stark and clear. Again, this goes back to the question of the purpose of the creation of this. If Joseph is simply writing this to himself, he probably doesn't need to remind himself exactly what he saw and how that went out. Because that, that's, that's his experience. Also, Someone who makes a criticism that, oh yes, this just proves that Joseph Smith didn't even have the idea of God and Jesus being separate people at the time, you know, he's just going to later develop that, is taking this account completely out of its historical context. Because what else has already happened in 1832? Joseph Smith has had his Doctrine and Covenants section 76 vision, where he has clearly seen Jesus on the throne, seated at the right hand next to the Father, and talks about both of them, talks about the individuality of both of them in that vision. It, it's a pretty weak argument to say that on the basis of what I think he should have included here, that shows that he didn't actually believe what his other documents and statements show. So it's one of those arguments, like like many antagonistic arguments uh, directed at, at, at believers that sound like it's a good argument. It sounds like it's, but really it's all just based upon supposition, assumption, and saying, well, it stands to reason. The reality is, if anyone ever tells you that it stands to reason, it doesn't. That's how you know. And what it means is, I don't have evidence. Remember our our podcast on, you know, Joseph Smith, a fun guy. I mean, when someone says that this is a working paper, what they mean is, I don't have evidence for the things I'm talking about. When someone says, well, it stands to reason that he would have mentioned this, or sometimes you'll even have people say, well, I know that if I had God and Jesus appear to me, I would write it like this. Frankly, unless you've had that experience, I don't think any of us know, and by the way, I haven't had the experience, I don't think any of us know how we would react to that experience. How would we describe it? For a second here, get a little personal with yourselves and think about the most spiritual experience you've ever had in your life. My guess is, if, if if you're thinking about it right now, this is an experience that you likely have not shared with very many people, and one of the reasons why you haven't shared it with very many people is that you probably tried to at some point, and and what happened is 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 like the like the mystics of the Middle Ages, who were frustrated when they tried to explain their interaction with god the the mystics would pray they'd have these this experience with god and and one of the problems that they would find is that i actually can't describe to you what my experience with god was and that in the fact of me trying to describe it i already know that you don't understand it right i mean joseph actually says this uh, when he's relating doctrine covenant section 76 when he talks about the glory of the celestial kingdom that lowest glory you, you can't understand it unless God shows it to you in a vision. You think about that most spiritual experience that you have. You might have tried to share it with someone and then had, had them, you know, you know, nod their and like, oh, that's really cool. And you're thinking to yourself, No, you don't, you don't understand. This was the most important thing. And, and, and I'm not saying that the person you're talking to is being mean about it. They, they want to engage in it. But you realize even as you're saying it, they have no idea. If I wanted to go back to you know the false letters I was writing to my mom on my mission, that was one of the things I came to, uh, to understand very quickly. I, I assume you guys both. The same thing, that, you, that when you were writing letters home on your mission, you realized within the first couple of weeks, no matter what I write in this letter, They have no idea what's going on here. If I spend a lot of time trying to explain the spiritual experience, they'll understand that some kind of experience happened, but they won't understand how it actually affected me. And I certainly am not going to tell them how terrified I am every day. They wouldn't understand that either. I might write, you know, I'm a little annoyed by my companion, but that doesn't actually get to what's really going on in my mind as, as, as I'm having the struggle with this companion. He doesn't want to go outside, doesn't want to work, whatever, right? So I think it's important that when we're talking about miraculous spiritual experiences, that one of the first things we have to do is we have to step back and examine ourselves and realize all of us actually have trouble explaining them. And it's, Partially because it's so powerful to us. It's partially because you're sharing the experience, you know, with a larger group, with a smaller group. What I tell my wife about that experience and what I might tell, you know, a, a, a giant fireside, they're, they're not going to be the same thing if I tell them about it at all. And what's Joseph Smith's experience when he did try to tell people about his first vision, they attacked him, made fun of him, told them he was a liar, told them it was a, it was from the devil. So, It's very possible that when Joseph is using this terminology, he thinks that the fact that he keeps saying the Lord appeared to me and that the Lord spoke to me, that in his mind he actually is separating those two things out, that he's just using that generic term for God. In any case, making the argument that this proves that Joseph Smith didn't actually see God in Jesus is is a terrible argument. Because as a historian, I don't have the ability to prove miracles as we talked about in the first you know a couple of 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 podcasts i don't have the ability to prove that miracles are beyond proof that's what makes them miracles and so what are we forced to rely upon we're forced to rely upon whatever the person says happened and joseph smith leaves multiple accounts of this experience so what we're going to cover though so you know don't worry that you know we'll there are other accounts of the first vision. That's, that's the whole point of the podcast. But the other thing I want to cover here that's often sometimes brought up as a controversy is the fact that Joseph Smith says that he was in the attitude of calling upon the Lord in the 16th year of his age. And that sometimes is highlighted by people saying, w- w- what do you mean the 16th year of my age? I mean, Joseph Smith was only 14 when he was, when, when he had his, that, he was 14. Now now you're saying he was he was 15, which the 16th year, right? You're 15, you're in your 16th year. And actually, there was a, a host of an antagonistic things that were written about Joseph Smith's first vision account by saying, see, Joseph Smith was making this up. He didn't even know how old he was. Well, I, I'll tell you what, if God appeared to me, I'd know how old I was. Now, again, start doing a little bit of self-evaluation. I'm guessing that as you actually look back through your life, it's it's not actually as easy as you think it is to know exactly what month and what day an an event happened oh sure if it's if it's a you know cataclysmic one or you know something joyous like the birth of your children at least my wife remembers their birthdays right i mean but if it's if it's if it's something else it it, it you may not exactly remember what was i was i a junior when that happened was i a sophomore oh my goodness i was a freshman when that happened right i mean you, th- that's a pretty natural tendency of people trying to remember even important events. But more importantly, it's probably good that we talk about the fact that age is very different to us than it was to them in the 19th century. As a 21st century modern, you have all kinds of things constantly drilling into your head, your birth date, and how old you are you know, you have Hallmark in and of itself, which by the way, didn't exist back then, right? That's a turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, you know, happy birthday to you. That's not part of their culture that yes, people will know their birthdays, but the idea of celebrating your birthday and people making you cake and presents and all that, that's, that's a 20th century, uh, 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 iteration. Um, in the early 19th century you rarely will have occasionally you'll people write in their journal, "Oh, today is the day of my birth." You know, but you know, apparently their friends didn't like them because no one brought by cake or cookies. Um, second of all, you I mean, think of every form you've ever filled out. You are constantly writing what your birthday is over and over and over and over again. You have a birth certificate declaring what your birthday is. All of the things that make you have to know how old you are. Oh, what, what grade am I in, in school? Oh, wait, they don't have a public school system. Oh, what, what, uh, I better get my, my social security card that doesn't exist. Um, well, well, well I, I know that you know, when I'm 16, I'll be able to have my driver's license. Well, when I, I register for the draft or selective service, all of those things don't exist in their world. And in fact, what you find is that it's, it's not the most common thing. But it is entirely common, and people who do family history can can tell you this: that some people don't actually know how old they are.
0: Well, this this right here isn't necessarily just a nineteenth century. This also could be a twenty first century thing. Where I have a coworker that was born in India in a in a small village, uh, and and he was born. He, he's not really sure of his birthday because when he was born, he was born at home, not in any kind of hospital facility, and his dad, in order to register the birth, had to travel to a faraway county seat, whatever the equivalent is. And it was not just a small trivial thing to go there. And so the the dad decided, well, okay, next time I get over there. And it was like six months later uh, that he finally got his birth certificate. But even then, they, he's not sure what his actual birthday was, because they didn't capture it at the time. And so it's one of those like, well, I think I was born in July-ish, and then, oh, my dad went over and get the birth certificate a few months later. So it's it's a constant, it's not just a uh, a 18th, or rather 19th century thing. It's It could be in the modern era.
1: It's a great example of, of how you might have that in the modern era. So
2: kind of in a similar way, my, my great-grandmother, she came over uh, to America from Poland in 1920, and when she got to Ellis Island, she didn't know her age. She they they changed their, their
1: name to, you know, you know Jan they, Smith or something, that's right. or,
2: or that's right. Well, and so, but in that in that particular case, they weren't sure the year or the day, and they just assigned her a birthday, um, and said you're 11 now.
1: <laughs> the documents that we have that constantly cause us to to ask, you know, how old to enter our age. First of all, you know, you know they don't have any computer forms they're filling out, but it really is not a a major aspect of 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 life in, in the 19th century. And so one example I can give you from the 19th century is Heber C. Kimball. So, you know, you've all know Heber C. Kimball, one of the original uh, members of the quorum of the 12. Well, when the quorum of the 12 is first organized, they they're all called at the same time. So, I mean, today we do it on the basis of seniority of how long you've been in the quorum. Well, you're calling everyone at the exact same time. They originally organized their quorums on the basis of how old you are. So if you know, if you're listening to this and you're one of the older people in your elder's quorum, you're thinking, well, maybe we'll go back to that. President Nelson's changing everything else. Um, but the 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 reality is is they're trying to organize it. The problem is Heber C. Kimball, who is born in America and, you know, you know, has has good parents, doesn't know how old he is. He doesn't really know when he was born. Well, that's a problem that he doesn't know when he was born. They actually have to guess, and they guess incorrectly. So they they actually will try to reorganize it on the basis of what they think his age is, and, and they're actually wrong. It takes moderns going back and finding sources to know exactly where he was at. I'm not saying that most people didn't know how old they were. What I'm saying is it is not an uncommon thing to read an autobiography of someone in which they say, I was born in 1817 or 1818. And you're thinking, well, you obviously were... You should know when you were born. Well, if you're living in 21st century America, you th- you you think that that's something you should know, but in fact, it, it is it is a common occurrence that people that, in the 19th century don't. Now, all of that is an aside, because first of all, I shouldn't lose sleep over the fact if Joseph is not entirely sure how old he is, but second of all, when you actually look at the document, which of course uh, early critics of the church did not, it's very apparent. That, that that phrase, in the 16th year of my age, is actually not original to the document. It's not written by Joseph Smith. This entire portion of, of the history is written by Joseph Smith in Joseph Smith's handwriting. And then later, someone, and that, that someone happens to be Frederick G. Williams, went back to the document and inserted above the line, in a different ink, in a, in a clearly different handwriting, in the 16th year of my age. Originally, it didn't even have an age marker for when the vision occurred. Frederick G. Williams, for whatever reason, decided he'd go back and add it. So now, I'm actually not struggling over Joseph not knowing how old he is when Joseph has the first vision. I'm actually struggling over the fact that Frederick G. Williams himself doesn't know how old Joseph was when Joseph had had the vision. So... Important that examining the documents, you know, something that seems like it's a really big deal. When someone says, "Well, I know that if uh, if, if God appeared to me, I'd know exactly how old that was." Well, in fact, the source is saying that it's it's Frederick G. Williams who doesn't seem to know exactly. But we'll talk about these other sources. Um, and after I'm going to leave the, this first account. I know we spent a lot of time on it because it kind of set the table for us. And I'm going to move to the next account that Joseph Smith talks about. Now, unlike the, the, the first account, where I actually don't know the context, I don't know why is Joseph even writing this. I, he never did with it what he wanted to do with it. He never finished it. Unlike that, the second account, I'm going to call the 1835 account, we actually do know the context. This account is one that's copied into Joseph Smith's journal. So it's not written Joseph Smith's handwriting. It's written Joseph kept a scribe to, you know, it's almost as if Joseph felt uncomfortable with his writing abilities. Uh, he, he has a scribe keep his journal for him. We don't know whether or not these journal entries are dictated or whether, um, you know, the scribe is trying to kind of keep them on the fly. It kind of, you get a little bit of, of a sense of both, actually. Um, but in any case, this is from 1835. In 1835, Joseph gets a visitor. Joseph's always getting visitors, but he gets this visitor who has got to be one of the strangest visitors he's ever had. A man by the name of Robert Matthews, Um, you know, not the Latter day Saint, you know, uh, scriptorian, but uh, uh, this man shows up. He calls himself Joshua the Jewish minister, and in point of fact declares to Joseph that he is a prophet. Now, Joseph. It really is a demonstration of Joseph Smith's uh, nature that Joseph brings the guy into his house and lets him stay there for a few days. He, He finds, as he has a conversation with Robert Matthews, that Matthews is claiming, the reason why he's calling himself Joshua, the Jewish minister, that in fact he is a prophet. And not only is he a prophet, he's actually the reincarnated Apostle Matthias, that's that same apostle that's talked about in the New Testament, right? Uh, you know, Judas is, 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 you know, kills himself or dies, however you want to take it in the New Testament. Um, and they, they have that whole discussion in Acts chapter one, you know, you know, of all these men who are with us all the time, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, must one be ordained, Right? And they, they, they vote, and their lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered among the 11 apostles. Right, So that, that first of the apostles called after uh, Jesus' death, well, Robert Matthews is claiming he is actually Matthias, that he's essentially the reincarnated, or at least the transmigrated spirit, which is a great 19th century term, meaning that Matthias' spirit was, was now placed in someone else's body, and it just so happened to be in his body. As you might imagine, that's a pretty bold claim to make. And Matthias slash Joshua slash Robert Matthews, he, he is telling Joseph how he came to know that he was this prophet. So the context of the 1835 account is very different. This is not Joseph attempting to write his account to the world. This is not Joseph attempting to publish it to members of the church. This is Joseph Smith responding to this false religious claim of this false prophet, you know, sitting at his breakfast nook, essentially. This is how it reads, and it's, it's shorter, so I'm going, to read, I'm going to read part of it. I commenced giving him, Robert Matthews, this is Joseph, uh, giving him a relation of the circumstances connected with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon as follows. Being wrought up in my mind respecting the subject of religion, and looking upon the different systems taught the children of men, I knew not who was right or who was wrong, and considering it of the first importance that I should be right in matters invo- that involved eternal consequences, being thus perplexed in mind, I retired to the silent grove and bowed down before the Lord, under a realizing sense that he had said, if the Bible be true, ask and you shall receive, knock and it shall be opened, seek and you shall find again. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and itbraideth not. So you already notice in this very first part of this account how little time it spends on Joseph Smith's own personal anguish, right? He's going to give you, he's giving you some of this. You know, I, I realized that I needed to ask God, you know, the why he asks, but there's actually very little of the, you know, I, I went to these different denominations and 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 I felt like I was a sinner and I needed to find some kind of truth. You're not getting that much of the backstory here. And I think that's because this account is a response to someone claiming, hey, I'm actually the real prophet. So Joseph Smith's response is going to focus on how Joseph is actually a prophet. Not as much of a lead up, And not as much that follows, because if you're claiming that the experience is the beginning point of your prophethood, then it's the experience itself that matters. It's actually pretty logical that Joseph is going to spend more time. And in fact, what do we find in the 1835 account? That it's the one that provides many of the details of the actual praying and the actual vision that we don't get anywhere else as we go on. Um. I called upon the Lord for the first time in the place above stated, or in other words, I made a fruitless attempt to pray. My tongue seemed to be swollen in my mouth so that I could not utter. I heard a noise behind me, like some person walking towards me. I strove again to pray, but could not. The noise of walking seemed to draw nearer. This, this, that the, there was some resistance. Are we going to
0: release this around Halloween? Yeah, the plan? we're going to okay, make sure it. this
1: drops actually on the Saturday night before I like had Halloween. some like yeah.
0: really good background music yeah. here
1: we yeah. can maybe get some eerie uh, you know uh, and maybe we we'll just play some you know some uh, Led Zeppelin songs in the background as uh, anyway but um, yeah th- 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 this is information that you actually don't get from his 1832 account it's information that you're all familiar with because of the published Joseph Smith history at least that there was an attempt to stop him that he had to overcome some being from the unseen world. But here, you, you get a lot more detail of what that overcoming is. That Joseph's actually hearing a noise. It sounds like someone's walking up on him while he's trying to pray. I strove again to pray but could not. The noise of walking seemed to draw near. I sprung to my feet. I looked around but saw no person or thing that was calculated to produce the noise of walking. You're right. This could be like a true crime podcast. Um, he, he, he's really struggling in the experience. I kneeled again, my mouth was open, and my tongue liberated, and I called on the Lord in mighty prayer, and a pillar of fire, notice he uses the word fire, he would crossed that out from his 1832, a pillar of fire appeared above my head. It presently rested down upon me and filled me with joy unspeakable. A personage appeared in the midst of this pillar of flame, which was spread all around and yet nothing consumed. So he's describing this as it's fire, but fire. Fire that doesn't start trees on fire. I mean, he's in the middle of, of the woods, right? So there's no nothing's consuming it, it. I can't describe it. It has a physical property as if it were fire, but it's it, it it's it's not really fire. Um, that another personage soon appeared, like unto the first. He said unto me, "Thy sins are forgiven thee," and he testified unto me that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And here's another thing he adds. And I saw many angels in this vision. That's a, a, a part of the first vision that we only get from the 1835 account. Only in this account is there this description that it's not just God and Jesus that appear, but it's actually an, it, it's a real opening of the heavens that he's seeing angels as well as the father and the son who here he, he clearly outlines, um, saying, uh, that thy sins are forgiven, he testified he's Jesus Christ, the son, of, uh, the son of God. And then Joseph does attempt to give an age marker here. I was about 14 years old when I received this first communication. It kind of does give you this idea that the actual age that took place is, is probably less important than, than obviously the experience itself. So we've, we've we've come to the end of our time here in talking about uh, um, these accounts of the first vision, but we're not done talking about it. So in our next podcast, we're going to talk about the other two accounts that Joseph Smith gives. We won't spend as much time on the one in Joseph Smith history because I, th- I think most of you got that down. But then we're also going to talk about what other people say they heard Joseph Smith teach about this powerful, miraculous experience of the first vision. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Richard and, and Jonathan for being with us today. And we'll hear uh, will we'll, we'll see you all again on the next podcast. Thank you for listening to the
0: standard of truth podcast hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.